my little motto to myself or to the world is don't be crap. Don't be crap. I can't understand why people do things less than as well as they possibly can. I just think as a doctor, we can't be half-hearted about it. You know, who wants a doctor who is less than perfectionist? Welcome back to another episode of the Elevate Her podcast, which highlights positive female role models to empower and inspire you to achieve your full potential. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Julia Bailey, Associate Professor in Primary Care at the University College London eHealth Unit and a specialty doctor in community sexual health in Southeast London. Julia's research focuses on the use of internet and mobile phone for sexual health promotion, sexual well-being, and how to improve communication between patients and practitioners during sexual health consultations. Today, we discuss what sexual health is, the different types of contraception available, their pros and cons, and why reducing stigma around sex and sexuality is key to improve both sexual health and well-being for everybody. Great. So, Julia, thank you so much for coming on today. It's a real honor to have you here with us. So, before we dive more into your work, would you mind giving a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, I'm a sexual health doctor in Southeast London. I'm also a teacher. So, I teach qualitative methods and sexual health at University College London. And I'm a researcher. My research focuses on sexual health online. So particularly mobile phones and the internet for sexual health promotion. And in the last couple of years, through my students and their projects, I've been doing much more about equality of access to sexual health services. That sounds incredible. <laughs> and it opens up the opportunity for lots of questions. <laughs> um, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about what you usually do day to day? So since the pandemic, working at home um, four days out of five, so one day a week I go to the clinic and that's three miles away. So it's a little cycle ride, um, a big diversity of patients. So that kind of breaks up my routine and I really enjoy that. So four days a week working from home, lots of meetings, which actually I really enjoy. Uh, so meetings with students, meetings with colleagues, meetings to plan projects, um, doing teaching online. Yeah. So you're a sexual health doctor now, but how did you come to where you are now? From very young, from age about eight, I wanted to be a GP, so a family doctor. I was a GP for eight years and really enjoyed it, but eventually realised it doesn't actually suit my personality. So I've switched to sexual health doctoring where I can concentrate on one field. And sexual health I find fantastically interesting because it just brings in everything. We always need to collaborate with patients in inverted commas you know with the people who come to see us but especially in sexual health so with choices about contraception or with um, patterns of sexual practice and so on whatever people's issues are the intersection of our public health agenda with people's concerns you know you definitely need to have collaborative conversations with them when I was a GP I landed up doing a small project collecting data so I was doctor in London's first two lesbian health clinics. So there was one in East London, one in West London, set up by Dr. Jane Kavanagh. 
so we collected some data about the prevalence of sexually transmitted infections and noticed that there were fewer STIs in that particular population who were attending. So yeah, I enjoyed that, wrote it up, um, got my first publication and that really got me drawn into research. And then I was lucky enough to get some fellowships. Um, so I got a PhD fellowship, uh, so I did that full time. And then I've been at UCL a long time, at least 15 years. And I really, really enjoy the combination of the clinical work, the teaching and the research. And it all feeds into each other really nicely, actually. Yeah, that's awesome. From researchers that we know also do clinical work, they all say it's so interesting and important to have both the research aspect and the clinical aspect. Because obviously, if one side just works within their own field, you just miss out on so much on so many aspects so I think what you've just said there that triangle of you know research teaching and the clinical work is so so important. I think it is really important to collaborate with others so you know within our department we've got health economists, psychologists, sociologists, statisticians so even if those things don't come in one person actually researchers working closely with clinicians is really important for instance and of course with patients getting patient views into all of our research as well. Definitely. In previous podcast episodes we had, we also talked about the importance of collaborating to drive science forward and how it's gladly now moving towards that. Regarding collaboration, you know, it's never one genius who's done it all by themselves. There's always a huge team behind them or behind him, shall we say, usually. But that my favorite type of meetings are where you've got people with different perspectives and I'll come in with a set of ideas and at the end of an hour or whatever it is, uh, have completely changed my views on the topic because of what other people say. It's just so enjoyable actually evolving our ideas through discussions with other people. Yeah, I think we both, we both 100% agree there. So one of your research parts you said focuses on internet and mobile phone for sexual health promotion. So would you mind elaborating a bit on this topic? So I have done quite a lot of systematic reviews of digital interventions for sexual health promotion. One of my students, Louisa Manby, did a, a review of uh, digital interventions for sexual for HIV prevention in sub-Saharan Africa and found that they are really effective for keeping people engaged with services and with taking medication. So that's phenomenally important is that a fairly simple mobile phone intervention can actually help people with being in HIV treatment and services. Another review looking at sexual health more broadly showed that interactive digital interventions are great for learning knowledge and they can also prompt behaviour change. Um, so actually these types of things, mobile phones, the internet, uh, could be much more widely used. So in schools, and that's another project we're looking at, digital resources for teachers to help them out. Uh, people can look at them privately. They can look at them with friends. They can look at them with parents. It can precipitate conversations, you know, with information that's reliable and with structured activities that kind of keep people on topic. But they do need to be really relevant, um, targeted and engaging. You know, so I think what happens an awful lot is that public health professionals write something actually really rather dull and very medicalized and then <laughs> try to get people to take notice of it. And that's the wrong way around. You have to start with 
what concerns people? What do they want to know about? What do they want to learn about? Um, and design in interventions that way around. It's such so, a yeah. great idea. Yeah, sexual health is such an important topic, but often it's like not really talked about in depth enough or you have questions and there's all these things where people would like more knowledge. So yeah, using mobile phone for that, I think it's um, it's an amazing tool. And um, my more recent project, been going for a few years, is the Contraception Choices website. That's particularly used in clinics. So if they've booked an appointment for contraception, they texted a link to the site beforehand. Um, I use the, and lots of my colleagues use the site uh, in consultation. So if somebody's not sure what to choose or what the side effects are, actually looking at a website where you've got pictures and clearly laid out pros and cons is incredibly useful. We did lots of field work with young women. So it was women, cis women, 15 to 30, to find out what was important to them, what would appeal to them, what would engage their interests. So yes, that's been very rewarding. That website is fantastic. Both Michael and I went through it and it's it's great. I mean, I would recommend it to anyone. It's really well made, really informative, really easy, like really visually you know, appealing as well. So yeah, absolutely great. We'll put the link to the website in the show notes as well so that oh, our listeners yes. can access. Yeah. And it's really also great. so relevant, this kind of contraception choices, what to do. I mean, I have to speak from, you know, my experiences, I'm from Germany and then there you mostly always get pushed towards the pill. But for example, me personally, I took the pill and it had like bad side effects. I've been on a path myself for finding the right um, um, contraception choice. So that website, for me, that would have been an absolute delight. <laughs> yes, what we would love to do is translate it into different languages. But we don't have any funding. So if any of your listeners have a great aunt who's left them some money or something <laughs> yeah we'll definitely well, keep that in our mind because obviously yeah. that's something like which would be close to everyone's heart we also had a look through your other research projects so another one was i think the sex unzipped website for sexual health for young people. Would you mind also giving an overview for the listeners about that as well? Mm, sure, yes. So that was quite a long time ago now. And we did focus groups with young people, so 16 to 20 year olds. They helped us design a website which isn't available anymore because the software became out of date. But the website addressed sexual well-being rather than just STI prevention, pregnancy prevention and so on. So there was quite a lot of content about relationships and what counts as a healthy relationship um, and sexual practice. So to tell people more about different sexual practices and also that thing of information is, is essential, but it's not enough. You also need a behaviour change element to an intervention. And it's quite difficult with websites. So contraception, for instance, there's actually masses of different steps in choosing, using, obtaining contraception and sticking with it. So you need to know all the ins and outs of it. You need to make a decision and it's never just one person making a decision. So there's a sexual partner, there might be their family, their friends, what they've been told in school, the social cultural expectations about career, family, age of marriage, all sorts of things. So although we talk to people one-to-one -one in clinic, it's not an individual decision, actually, in reality. Then there's, you know, is there even a clinic nearby? Does it cost money? 
are people actually given a range of options or are they being pushed towards a particular thing? So that's all too common, is that the clinicians don't really give an informed choice. And then there's, you know, the procedure itself, which people might be put off. And then there's, you know, remembering to take the pill or whatever is involved. So there's so many behaviours involved and there's so many steps where that can go wrong. And it's nothing to do with the knowledge. So someone might have the, the good knowledge, but there's all these other things need to happen. So since the pandemic and um, services being shut down, actually, that's been a catastrophe for sexual health. Can you maybe talk a bit more about that, like the impact of COVID on sexual health and sexual health promotion? Of course, in the, the first lockdown, there was enormous confusion about what on earth to do. And lots of services shut their doors and... Uh, went to telephone consultations or online consultations. Our service carried on seeing people for emergencies, but for routine sexual health care, we closed to start with. And that's against the background of lots of cuts in services in the first place. There wasn't enough appointments in the first place. And then with the pandemic on top, it just means people haven't been able to, to access services. So yes, there are more unplanned pregnancies as a result. Yeah, that is very interesting. And it's obviously it's a big shame. So I had a question just you most of the time get pushed towards just a pill. There are often these kind of side effects where like you're gaining weight and things like that. So what would be your your point of opinion maybe there? So, yes, people often do have experienced, um, you know, a lack of choice. So the pill and condoms is a very common uh, sort of first use of contraception. I think sometimes people themselves, young people, don't really want to think about more long-lasting methods as a first choice because, for instance, the pattern of relationships might be a bit on and off, they might not be having sex that often, don't really want to commit to something that seems like a big deal. Uh, sexual health services will all provide a whole range of choices, but um, GP services might and might not. So with things like the COIL, the special training, and absolutely there should be, so that means that not all doctors and nurses put the coil in by a long way. So that probably influences the choices that are on offer as well. I think it's really interesting, like all the options that are out there, but that we don't really know about, especially in school. I feel like it's really missing out. So there's like this whole gap in, you know, in the curriculum that's missing. And I really hope that in the future we'll get more about sexual health embedded within the curriculum at an early age, or at least, you know, for teenagers. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And there's this worry that if you tell uh, children or young people too much about sex, sexuality, sexual health, it's going to encourage them to have sex. And that's the exact opposite of what happens. <laughs> there's so much evidence that it is exactly opposite. If you give people information, then they tend to delay first sex and more likely to use contraception condoms and have sex that is mutually agreed. But um, regarding side effects, so the pill may put on weight, but definitely that's not an automatic side effect. It might encourage, you know, it might make people feel more hungry um, and therefore eat more. But if you look at the whole population of people taking the pill, yeah, it can happen, but it's definitely not a, a top side effect. With the injection, so the depot injection, putting on weight is definitely an acknowledged side effect with depot injection. I quite like to say a bit more about benefits of various um, contraceptions really. So there's a lot of worry about the side effects and those are really important and it's 
yeah, incredibly important to have accurate information about side effects. First thing to say is that there are some rare and serious side effects, but that on balance, it's amazing how safe contraception is. And for most of it, we can take it from 15 to menopause, 15 to 50, to be honest. So there's quite a lot of myths about needing to come off it after a certain amount of time or needing breaks from hormonal contraception. And actually, that's not necessary, not true at all. Especially the single hormone contraception is unbelievably safe. I suppose what happens is that when you're preventing something, you don't have the evidence that it would have happened if you hadn't taken that contraception. (laughs) So if you've got a text once every nine months to say, you would have been pregnant by now, you know, how great is that? (laughs) That might sort of, I don't know, be more of an advert for contraception. Do you know what I mean? Whereas you take it, nothing happens, and you've sort of got nothing to be thankful for in some ways. We hear a lot about the risks and not so much about the benefits. So for instance, for controlling periods, the methods that have oestrogen and progestogen in, you can use those continuously with no break and therefore have no period. But people can also, I don't know if there's an exam coming up or a holiday or for whatever reason, control when to have a period with those methods. There's quite a lot of methods that can mean no periods, a bit more unpredictably, but the implant and the hormone uh, containing coil Uh, can mean no periods and people sometimes worry about that so worry that it means there's something wrong or there'll be future infertility but the reason it's happened is that just the womb and the ovaries are basically having a rest that's how I like to explain it so usually the hormones go up and down monthly and that triggers the egg release with these methods of hormones it's a steady release of hormone so it's the same level and that sends the body the message that well no action needed here you don't need to release the egg so therefore women ovaries can yeah have a rest until until needed so there's no effect on future fertility and in many ways it does people good so not having periods means saving iron less of a risk of anemia tiredness and so on so there's a benefit controlling periods less anemia Uh, contraception hormonal contraception can be great for period pain making periods lighter, can really help with premenstrual. Equally, if there's quite a lot of people who do like to see a period, they feel reassured by it and want to to see a regular period and contraception can absolutely uh, go hand in hand with that as well. So the copper coil, you'll have whichever cycle you would usually have. And then the methods with two hormones, so pill, patch, vaginal ring, you can time it to have a completely regular period. Thank you for highlighting the benefits. Do you know anything about like maybe the progress on male contraception at the moment? I don't. That's a really good question. But yeah, not my field. All I know, but don't put this in the interview because really I don't know, is that they've tested some methods. They had some side effects. And so it was thrown out. (laughs) Whereas for women, the methods have side effects. And that's what we just have to deal with. Yeah. yeah, but I don't I don't know the details, actually. OK, yeah, because um, that's really interesting for me as well. I've been also trying to find something out about this, um, just like as general curiosity as well. I think there's a lot of issues with with trust. Many, many men don't like using condoms because they interfere with pleasure. Um, and that's an issue that's often not addressed. Um, so 
if somebody was to say, yes, I'm on a method of contraception, if a man was to say, I'm on another form of contraception, don't need to use a condom, I don't know. I think there's complicated dynamics about responsibility. So it's not fair that women take all the responsibility for pregnancy prevention. On the other hand, at least they're in control of it. And I had just one point, because you mentioned how um, taking the pill, not bleeding, basically not having a period, can prevent anemia. And I guess anemia is such a big issue in many developing countries. So do you think that using the pill could actually help prevent anemia in those countries? What a fantastic question. Yes. I mean, if there's malnourishment, often periods will stop anyway. But yes, I mean, that's a really good point. Is it could be an important additional tool to save the loss of iron. I, mean, I think some of the issues are about obviously access to the method. Do they have to travel a long way to get to a clinic? And then there's a bit more monitoring needed with the combined hormone. So um, just height, weight, blood pressure and personal history and family history. In countries where there's good internet access, actually all of that can be done online and you can pop into a chemist to check blood pressure. So uh, do you sometimes find that discussions about sexual health may be difficult for patients or also for clinicians? People who come to a sexual health clinic obviously have a, an idea of what to expect and that they're likely to be asked questions about sex and sexuality, gender partners and so on. I'm sometimes surprised at how much people tell us and I think it's an amazing privilege that within those four walls, um, I can ask all kinds of questions and people might tell me things that they've never said out loud. They've not told their partner, they've not told friends. There's all sorts of barriers to being able to talk about things that are difficult. So sex, sexuality, STIs, sexual behavior, that's deemed to be risky in inverted commas, is all very stigmatized. And it is tricky to talk about. And I think, There's particular issues where our agenda as clinicians is different to somebody else's agenda. So condoms prevent STIs. Everybody knows that. But uh, condoms interfere with pleasure, especially for people with penises. And so people don't want to use them. <laughs> so my agenda is that I would love people to have fewer STIs. And, I, and there's not very many ways of doing that. Use condoms and have fewer partners. And those two messages are extremely unwelcome. Why would want somebody want fewer partners if they're enjoying their sex life? So I think that can make it tricky. It can make people feel quite judged if we're giving advice that is stigmatizing. Absolutely. I think it's, a, it's really important that you highlight that because as clinicians, I can imagine, you know, just how hard it is to balance both the patient's interests and the public health interest, if you can say that you know, in this way. So I guess, yeah, it's, it's such a hard balance to strike there. Yes. And that's actually the theme of a research project that we're putting together now is about being non-judgmental. So in all the guidance for doctors and nurses, it's really clear we must not be judgmental, whatever the issue is, but particularly sexual health. But what does that actually mean? Because we all come with our own sets of assumptions. Um, And we kind of can't help having judgments. So the project is going to look at what does that actually mean in practice? So even if I phrase something as neutrally as I possibly can, 
the person hearing it is likely to feel stigmatised by some health advice. So a good example is abortion care really, is that I might be thinking, it's a shame that you've got pregnant by mistake. Would you like a method of contraception? But actually those conversations can make people feel blamed for getting pregnant by accident. So the project is going to look in a lot of detail about how as clinicians we can be non-judgmental um, and help people to feel they've got the information they need and they can make the choices that they want without us plonking our own values on them. And may I ask, um, just as a follow-up question, in conversations with patients, did you ever feel challenged? Yeah, only once, I would say, which is interesting. So I trained as a doctor in 1989, very long time ago, but um, there was one young man who had chlamydia and was not at all interested in telling his partners about it. So he'd had several female partners and I found that extremely challenging. So I'm sure with contact tracing, you know, we say to people, please tell tell your partners, it's important that they get treated. And I'm certain that lots of people don't do that. And there's all sorts of reasons why people don't do that. It's very stigmatizing. There's a risk of abuse sometimes. Um, you know, it's embarrassing, awkward. There's all sorts of reasons why people might not want to tell sexual partners. But I landed up feeling very challenged by him because he, you know, just was not willing to contemplate it at all, telling his partners. And there, there we are in the clinics kind of treating infection after infection. <laughs> and it's just feeling like we're not pulling together on this. Nobody wants chlamydia. Uh, we don't want to treat it. Nobody wants to have it. And there needs to be some form of joint effort on this, I suppose, in some way. Definitely agree. I mean, we've seen that with this. We've seen that with COVID. There's all these kind of yeah traits where we see where we just have to all pull together in order to get the same outcome we all want. It's actually a huge missed opportunity. Um, so while everybody was in lockdown, I mean, not everybody stayed at home and we, we know that actually, but it would have been an opportunity to screen for STIs. So screen for HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea and treat people. It would have been fantastic, actually, because part of the issue with STI treatment and testing is the delay. So it takes a while, you know, to get to clinic, to do the test, to get the result, to tell the other people, by which time, yeah, it's a losing battle. I remember, like, because I did my BSc project in HIV transmission in mm -hmm. homosexual men. I was modeling things, but it was really interesting. Just you mentioned the delay. And so I had to put that all into account, delay, you know, notifying partners, how many partners the, the men had. So all that dynamics, I can imagine just how hard it is for clinicians also to deal with that. Yes, and it's so linked with stigma. So if it was mm -hmm. less stigmatizing, getting testing, tested, uh, telling people, getting treatment, it, it would be much better. So I had just one, one quick question, because I know you did some work on sexual health for non-binary and transgender individuals as well. So if you can just touch on that a little bit, because I think it's a really important topic. Mm, sure. Yeah, we know that uh, trans and non-binary people can find it very challenging. There's lots of barriers to 
accessing sexual health services. So it can be difficult to go along because of being worried about assumptions being made, um, being misgendered, maybe not wanting to be examined. So there's all kinds of things about accessing services that might be more tricky. So I do uh, training with medical students and junior doctors about how can we be inclusive in the questions that we ask. Uh, so taking a history, we learn these kind of sets of questions, but they tend to be orientated towards cisgendered people and they shouldn't assume heterosexuality, but you find actually that lots of clinicians do assume heterosexuality. So a young lesbian will go to a clinic, maybe on the pill for period pain and be asked, you know, um, do you have a boyfriend? So my training is all about how do we find questions that can apply to everybody? And there's a student doing a project just starting, which is about contraception for trans and non-binary people. And there's issues about, um, so hormones, if people are taking hormones, testosterone or oestrogen, and is there a risk of pregnancy because of the type of sex that they're having? And how can contraception complement the hormones they're on rather than work against them, for instance? So, yeah, there's a lot to know about feeling confident as clinicians in advising trans and non-binary patients. I'm just going to ask you our final question that we ask all our guests, and that is, what is your favourite word or quote and why? This is really funny. <laughs> um, yeah, my little motto to myself or to the world is don't be crap. Don't be crap. I can't understand why people do things less than as well as they possibly can personally. So I'm quite perfectionist and I think if we are looking after patients or doing research or doing teaching, I'll always aim to do it absolutely as well as I possibly can. And I ask that from my students too. And their work is amazing. It's fantastic. There's lots of pros and cons to being perfectionist. I think I give myself a lot of work because I really want to get it absolutely as, as good as it can be. And that can work against being more productive, to be honest. And I probably do put quite a lot of stress on other people. But I don't know. I just think as a doctor, we can't be half-hearted about it. You know, who wants a doctor who is less than perfectionist? So it comes from that, I think, as well, of just thinking. Of course, mistakes happen within medicine and it's very difficult to deal with them. But we can't kind of aim for, oh, that will do. No, absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much, Julia, for coming on today. It was great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Julia as much as we did and learned more about sexual health, the different types of contraception available and how to choose one that fits your needs and preferences. Definitely check out the Contraception Choices website, which provides very useful information about the pros and cons of each method. You will find the links in the show notes. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast as well as share it around you so that we can reach and empower more people to elevate their lives. If you wish to support our work, please check out our link tree where you can find a link to donate. See you next week for another exciting episode. Mm-hmm.